where we are in Ezekiel 16:59. Thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. There's a whole bunch of theology in there. Remember in the previous part of chapter 16, he talks of Jerusalem and Israel as a young lady who he's found in the wilderness and has nurtured and has cut a marriage covenant with. And she went off and played the harlot. And not only was she unfaithful to him, but she took the stuff that he had given her and used it for the false gods that she was whoring after. And that naturally upset him. And he talks about her two sisters, one of them being Sodom, and the other one being Samaria. Sodom we all know, and Samaria was the seat of the northern kingdom. So what he says is, I destroyed them, but you have gotten so bad that if I don't do something with you, I'm going to have to apologize to them. You know, words to that effect. Then he says, 59 now, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. In other words, this is going to be measure for measure. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. So what he's saying here is he is going to remember the covenant that he cut with them, even though they have violated that covenant. And there are a couple of covenants out there. Some of them are conditional and some of them are not. So, for example, the covenant that was made with Abraham, where God walked between the pieces himself, it's an unconditional covenant. It is not dependent upon the performance of the children of Abraham. Covenant at Sinai does have conditions on it. What God insisted on and what they agreed to is that they would obey and hear his voice and obey, and they didn't do that. Yet I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. So what he's saying here is the covenant that he will establish subsequently, which is to say when he brings them back, is going to be an everlasting covenant. And I will suggest to you that that's what we know as the new covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. So what he's saying is, when I bring your sisters back, I will give them to you as daughters. In other words, you will be in the preeminent place. But you're going to be ashamed of your performance. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. That you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame. He is taking them back out of his love and his goodness, not because of anything that they deserve. And in fact, they don't deserve anything. And furthermore, he would be just as happy if they kept their mouths shut because of what they did and what they have dragged both themselves and God through. When I atone for you for all that you have... Whoops, wait a minute. 
when I atone for you for all that you have done. So who's doing the atonement here? God is doing the atonement himself. And as we would say in Christian theology, there isn't anything that Israel has at this point that is valuable enough to make atonement for what they've done. In other words, they've run up a debt they can't pay. That's basically what God has said all along here is, you're disgusting. I mean, you're really disgusting. You haven't got anything that is capable of making it right. So the only way it's going to be made right is if I do it. So I'm going to go ahead and make it right. And, oh, by the way, you need to know that I made it right. You need not to get all proud of the fact that you're going to be back in covenant with me because the only reason you're back in covenant with me is because I want you there. Because there's nothing that you have or nothing that you have done that merits your being in the covenant with me. You've already broken the one we made before. So I'm going to have to do it myself. And so what I'm going to suggest to you is that when he atones for you, it's going to be his blood that covers for the sin. The restoration of Israel is entirely a work of God. Now, having said that, I'm going to modify it just a little bit. Because remember we talked in Midrash, we're on the Song of Moses right now, or will be this coming week. And we have just gone through the blessings and curses at the end of Deuteronomy. And what did we say about the blessings and cursings at the end of Deuteronomy? There is no promise of redemption there. As opposed to the blessings and cursings in Leviticus where it says God himself will reach down and bring them back. The only way that forgiveness is going to be gotten for this second exile is if Israel asks for it. So the request for atonement has got to come from the bottom up. And that is consistent with the pattern when the whole nation is in exile. Because remember when they were in the Egyptian exile, it wasn't until God heard their groanings that he went in and accomplished the exodus. Whereas with the Babylonian exile, that is not all of Israel. That's simply Judah, or mostly Judah. So you have a different pattern there. So what he's talking about here is all of Israel. And in that case, what has to happen is Israel has to cry out and God has got to accept it. And he's got to be the one that makes the atonement. The question was, when will they cry out? And Yeshua himself says that at the end of, what is it, Matthew? Where he stands over Jerusalem just before the crucifixion and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who stones the prophets, how I long to gather you. Is it, and I, you will not see me again until you call Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. So what he's doing is he is saying something that is exactly congruent with the Torah which says at the second exile, which happened in 70 AD, you ain't coming back until you ask. I believe this will be national Israel on the earth. And at least as I understand prophecy, which lots and lots of very good people don't understand it the way I do, so that doesn't mean I'm right, doesn't mean I'm wrong, is Israel's going to lose a war. And when Israel loses a war, they're going to get backed into a corner and they're finally going to turn and call to God. And that's when you're going to have Yeshua starting at Basra and working his way up to the Mount of Olives and going through armies <coughs> in the process. That's how I read it. That doesn't mean it's right. 17. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, 
a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top off the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant water. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. And its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. Commentary that I have says that the eagle is Nebuchadnezzar, and it talks about this in sections. The first time it came, it took off the top of the tree, which is the king. And it took with it the topmost of its young twigs, because one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar did is in addition to lopping off the royalty, he took of the nobility and he moved them back to Babylon and planted them and they flourished in Babylon. Because you remember when they came back from Babylon 70 years after they started (coughs) captivity, most of them didn't want to come. They were quite happily rooted in Babylon. Life was good there. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. In other words, Israel flourished in captivity. Seven. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots towards him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. That, again, is another eagle, and that's Egypt. And what happened is the remnant of Israel that was left by Nebuchadnezzar formed an alliance with the Egyptians. And that's one of the things that sort of annoyed Nebuchadnezzar. Notice it says, And behold, its bind bent its root toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted. Where was the bed where it was planted? Israel. So the place that this tree was originally planted was the land, Israel. Part of it gets moved to Babylon, where it then flourishes and sends out vines. The part that remains turns to Egypt. In other words, from where it was rooted is Israel, so it it tries to grow down and form an alliance with Egypt. Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither. It will not take a strong arm or my people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? Wither away on the bed where it sprouted. So, will it thrive? The answer is no, it will not. It's a rhetorical question. And it will, in fact, be plucked up. And notice it says... Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers? Who is he? The first eagle, Nebuchadnezzar, which is exactly what happens. What's going on here is the first captivity of Babylon. Had Israel behaved, it would have been a fairly mild chastisement from God. In other words, he only took the leadership and the cream out the first time. And that would have been a chastisement, and they would have remained in the land, although they would not have been a national power. And one can infer that perhaps in 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar died and so forth, they would have then reverted. 
So what you have is a proportional chastisement, if you will. What happens next when they rebel and they don't put up with where God has placed them, then they get sanded off flat. And the reason they get sanded off flat is because they are rebelling against both God and Nebuchadnezzar. Not that those two are equivalent. From Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, they're sanded off because they rebel against him. From God's point of view, they are sanded off because they have rebelled against his judgment, which is to take away their independence for a time. Verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, and took her king and her princes, and brought them out to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away. That's what I just described. Babylon came the first time and replaced the king and took away some of the nobility, installed another king of the line of David and put him under oath, as in, you will serve me. 14. That the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep its covenant that it might stand. What he's saying is, what I did is I humbled them. And if it had kept its covenant, it would have stood. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? The answer to all those questions is clearly no. Verse 16. As I live, declares the Lord God, Surely, in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. That requires a little unpacking. As I live, declares the Lord. That's straightforward. Surely, in the place where the king dwells, who made him king. Who is the king who made him king? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the one that installed the king in Israel whose oath he despised, in other words, the oath he made with Babylon, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. This breaking covenant stuff has become a habit. First they break their covenant with God, so God puts them under a covenant with another nation. They break that covenant, and God says, two strikes, you're out. 17. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. So what God is saying is this whole thing started because you broke my covenant. So the root of all this is because you didn't keep faith with me. So it's just going to go downhill. I gave you a second chance with Nebuchadnezzar. You didn't keep that either. So tough for you. 20. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword. And the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. You shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Oh, by the way, one thing up here. Mention of an east wind. 
back when we're doing metaphorical stuff earlier on. East wind represents judgment. 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it may dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and I make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. What are we talking about here? In previous lessons, we've talked about birds, and birds are not good, which is true. This current Christian church where it's got lots of birds in it, and that's also true. I will suggest to you, I will break off from its topmost of its twigs, young twigs, a tender one. So we are talking about royalty here. We are talking about somebody from the line of David. The topmost of the tree is royalty, a tender twig is youth, so we're talking about reestablishing the house of David. I myself will plant it. Well, what member of the house of David has been planted by God himself? Yeshua. And where did he plant it? In Israel. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. In other words, what we're talking about here is Messiah, and specifically we're talking, I believe, with the Messiah in his second coming when he rules and reigns. So what I'm suggesting that this is talking about, you don't have to buy it, it's just what I'm suggesting, it's talking about the Messiah first off, and specifically it's talking about his second coming in the millennial kingdom. And what he's saying here is under that cedar will come all the nations to shelter themselves. In other words, they've got to come up to Jerusalem in order to get rain and so forth. But just because they come up to Jerusalem and just because they do what they've got to do because he rules with a rod of iron doesn't mean their hearts are changed. All right, now we're going to shift gears. Chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating the proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. I guess the first question is, what does the proverb mean, and is it accurate? If the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, I mean, that goes right back to Deuteronomy, doesn't it? And it is true. If the fathers live in sin, there is a very, 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 very high probability that the children also will live in sin. Now, what God is going to say here is that the sin that kills the children is going to be the sin that they themselves do. I'm saying something different, which is to say the example set by the father is followed by the son. So the reason that the son falls into sin and is judged could be, could be, I've got to be careful here, initially because of the example of the way he was raised. So both of these things are true. The sins of the fathers do go down the generations, 
And the reason they go down the generations is because the children learn at their father's knee sinful ways. And it just goes on down. And what God is going to say here in my reading is the sin of the father is not the thing for which the son dies. The thing for which the son dies is his own sin. Different conversation. If the son got raised with a bad example, his chances of falling into sin are very high. And God will say all of this much more eloquently than I just did. So let's go. Five. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains, eat upon the mountains means eating things that are sacrificed to idols. If he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. So what you just have gotten there is Torah 101, the Cliff Notes version. What he's saying is, if you follow my Torah, you are righteous. 10. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself does none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lands at interest, and takes profit, shall he live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations, he shall surely die, his blood shall be upon himself. So what he is saying very, very clearly here is you have a father who has behaved according to Torah. He has ordered his life according to the precepts of Moses. He is righteous. He shall surely live. If he sires a son who is of a different temperament and falls into all manner of sin, in other words, walks contrary to the Torah, that son shall surely die because he is unrighteous. Righteousness being defined as the Torah. Verse 14. Now, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. So now in our hypothetical here, got the righteous father, an unrighteous son, now our grandson. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes, he shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So you got father, son, grandson, Father is righteous, son is wicked, grandson is righteous again. Father lives, grandson lives, son dies. And the standard here is what? Torah. Read it yourself. It doesn't say anything except what does he do? 
This is Torah, 19. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins, the what who sins? The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. So it says that if you have lived a life of wickedness and you suddenly decide to become righteous, your wickedness will be wiped away. However, there's the flip side of that. 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. The last thing then is a repentance call for the house of Israel. And you read that in the context of everything that has gone before. What he is saying is, if you turn and repent, I will remember your transgressions no more. So he's gone through this set of fairly graphic examples, all in context of Torah. And he has explicitly laid out what the criterion are for life and death. Now, there's a couple of things we need to get a handle on. First question is, how can he do that? You know, he's God and we're not. That sort of smacks on God, this sovereignty, can do anything he wants. That's not true. God is sovereign, that is true. He can do anything he wants is not true because God has agreed to be bound by the rules that he has placed upon himself. Being sovereign simply means that nobody else gets to dictate the rules to God. He makes the rules, but he promises us that he'll abide by them. So my question remains, 
How can he do that? Is this saying that if you lived a life of 99 years and the last 20 minutes you rebelled, that all that good is not going to save you? Yes. Notice how I said that, by the way. Notice the specific word I used. I used rebelled. We're not talking messing up and making some mistakes. We're talking about rebellion here. And we have been talking about rebellion in the context of Israel all through this letter. We're talking about rebellion. We're talking about unfaithfulness. We're talking about adultery. We are not talking about normal human foul-ups. The works that you do are a window into the state of your soul and spirit. That's what James says, and I agree with that. It says in other places in Scripture, sin brings death. The question is, how can God overlook it? Remember when we went through the book of Hebrews, we talked about the three tabernacles or the three temples, the three orders of priesthood, and the three kinds of sacrifice. There are three orders of priesthood. There is the priesthood according to the order of Aaron, the Kohanim. There is the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, of which there is one member, perhaps two, but I think just one, and that's Yeshua himself. And then there is the priesthood of all believers. So you have three orders of priesthood. Each one of those three orders of priesthood has a different altar at which it sacrifices. Those of the order of Melchizedek, him of the order of Melchizedek, sacrifices in the altar in heaven of which the earthly altar is a copy. And the sacrifice he brings is his own blood, and that is done once for all, period. The middle one, which is the Kohanim, the order of Aaron, sacrifices on the temple mount or in the tabernacle, wherever God puts his word. And they bring the blood of bulls and goats, and the sacrifices that they bring for those that are sin sacrifices, I mean, there are lots of sacrifices for other reasons besides sin. We're just talking sin right now, which is a small subset. So the sin sacrifices they bring are for specific technical things that the nation Israel does with respect to its relationship with God. You know, the Sanhedrin messes up. The king messes up and leads the country astray. Somebody makes a mistake and eats a sheep that's designated for, you know, I mean, all sorts of technical stuff having to do with the Mishkan. That's handled with the blood of bulls and goats on that earthly altar. And the order of Aaron is the ones that sacrifice there. The temple that is the body of Messiah here on earth is us. And the sacrifice we're allowed to bring is the sacrifice of praise. Now, in the lower two divisions, the sacrifices that are brought, either bulls and goats or praise, cannot atone for willful sin. If you look in the Torah, there is no sacrifice for willful sin against God. I said that very specifically. There is a sacrifice for willful sin between people. So if you're going to have atonement for willful sin against God, it has got to be on that uppermost altar by the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's what scripture says. So the atonement that he provides is the blood of Yeshua, which is sacrificed on that upper altar outside of time once for all. And that's how he can turn and say, your sin is now dealt with. The price has been paid for the willful rebellion that you're in. Now the only question becomes, are you going to repent and return to me? Or are you going to walk away from me? And I'm suggesting to you that's what is being described here, is whether or not you are going to turn to him and take advantage of the atonement that he has provided. Remember it said back earlier that he would provide the atonement? 
And so the question is, are you going to take advantage of that atonement that he provided, or are you going to live your life in rebellion? What state are you in when you finally shuffle off this mortal coil? We're not talking about trivialities. We're not talking about normal human stuff. What we're talking about is rebellion and wickedness. And that is not something that you generally do by accident. That's a choice. Your spiritual state flows through your actions. And that's what James says. James says, you're a child of God? Cool. Let me see your works. You don't have any? Hmm. I have reason to doubt that you're a child of God. Because a child of God bears fruit. And that's what's being talked about here. What fruit are you bearing in your life?